0: Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. You'll find that in your Bible near the beginning. Um, There's Bibles in the seats if you'd like to use one of those Bibles, and it's the second book of the Bible, so it's right near the beginning in the book of Exodus. That particular passage which was read for us is kind of a high point of a bigger story that we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our series tracing the big storyline of the Old Testament. We're, We're following this outline, which we have up here. First, we looked at creation two weeks ago, how God created a good world, but it all unraveled as humans turned away from God and sought to go their own way. And we saw that things by the end of that first part of the story had gotten so bad that all humanity had gathered together at a place called Babel, also known as Babylon, to build a city and a tower to the heavens to forge a future for themselves apart from God. And God had to scatter them to protect them from themselves and from one another. But that was only a temporary band-aid solution. And so we were wondering, what would God do to save his creation? And then we saw last Sunday what God chose to do. God chose A single couple, Abraham and Sarah, and God called them out of their lives, out of the world to live by faith in God. And God promised to make them into a new people and to give them a land and to bless all nations through them. And as that chapter of the story continued, Abraham and Sarah eventually had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, but there was famine, which threatened the land and it threatened to destroy this family. And so through one of those sons, Joseph, God took care of this family and moved them to Egypt where there was food. And so now today we get to the third chapter of this story, which we're calling Sinai. And here the story fast forward several hundred years. Jacob's family, Abraham and Sarah's family have Uh, grown in Egypt, they've thrived in Egypt, they've multiplied, and now we find that though they've become a, a numerous people, they've become enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And so today's story begins with slavery and oppression. Did you ever wonder why God allowed his people to experience this kind of suffering? I mean, God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would become the parents of a great nation and that that nation would inherit the promised land. But now we see that God has, has indeed been faithful to, to grow Abraham and Sarah's family into a numerous people, but they aren't a nation yet and they're not in a promised land. They're in Egypt, they're in bondage, they're groaning under brutal slavery, they're being oppressed and the Egyptian pharaoh is actually murdering their baby boys. Why? Why would God allow his special people to become slaves and to suffer like this? Well, we just aren't told why. (laughs) But one thing is clear. God is faithful to his people and God remembers his promises to them. And God will move heaven and earth to fulfill these promises. And so we read at the beginning of, of this chapter of the story in Exodus 3, the Lord says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God will be faithful to keep his promise. How will God do it? Well, God raises up Moses to be a deliverer. And so begins the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. God saves his people. We're going to see in two ways, actually. First, God delivers them from their slavery and their bondage in Egypt by mighty acts of God's power. Through 10 plagues, through the Red Sea, if you know the stories, God is a mighty warrior and in great power redeems his people. But then second, God also saves his people from judgment and death. On the eve of their deliverance, you might remember, God is going to punish Egypt For killing the baby boys of God's own people and for refusing again and again to let God's people go. And God's going to punish them by killing the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But then God says to his own people, in effect, you're not so deserving yourselves. (laughs) You need salvation from this coming judgment. So take a lamb and sacrifice it and place its blood over your doorways and the blood of this sacrifice will shelter you, will cover you, will protect you from my judgment and from death. So two salvations, a powerful, victorious salvation of deliverance from the Egyptians and then a merciful, sacrificial salvation from judgment and death. And we, we continue to see both of these aspects of salvation in the biblical story. Well, after God rescues his people, God brings them out of Egypt and out of death. Where does God bring them? God brings them to Mount Sinai, where another decisive moment in the history of God's people takes place. There, God descends to be present with his people and to make a covenant with them. Now, this covenant that God makes is a high point. It's a key point in the Old Testament story. And and it reinforces and it expands upon an earlier covenant, which we saw last week God made with Abraham. And this covenant takes the form of, of the human covenants, which were common at that time, where a great king called a suzerain would make a treaty, an alliance with a less powerful king called a vassal. And we know from history and we know from ancient documents from that time that covenants followed a certain format. And here's a little simplified version of that. First, the great king, the suzerain, would rehearse how great he was and how much he'd already done for the vassal. And then second, in return, the vassal would promise his loyalty and his faithfulness to the greater king. And the requirements of that faithfulness would be spelled out in detail by the suzerain in the covenant document. You help me in battle, you pay me tribute, pay your taxes, you promise you won't rebel against me, etc., And then third in these covenants, there would be a list of the blessings that the vassal would enjoy under the covenant, and also the cursings, the consequences of what would happen if the vassal failed to remain faithful to his suzerain, to which he would pledged loyalty. Well, this is almost exactly the sort of covenant that God forms with his people, starting in Exodus 19 and ending in Exodus 23. God is the suzerain, the great king. And first, God rehearses what he's already done for the people. Exodus 19.4, we read it. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And God adds generously that he, uh, what God adds to this covenant not only what he's done in the past as was typical of these covenants, but also what he promises to continue to do for the people. Verse 5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be for me a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God also promises to give the people the promised land, to bring the people into it and give them possession of it. That's all the way down at the end of the covenant, chapter 23. And so right here, a reiteration we see um, a reiteration and an expansion of this triangle that we we looked at a couple weeks ago of God, the people, and the land. God reveals himself as, as Yahweh, the Lord, and makes a covenant with Israel. God's already rescued them, and now they will be his people, Israel. God will make them into a great nation, and God will give them the land of Canaan and settle them in it. And so the covenant talks about these three relationships and how they're going to work together. Second, we see that in return, God's people must pledge to be faithful to God. And the stipulations of that faithfulness are laid out in the law in chapters 20 to 23 of Exodus. Beginning with the Ten Commandments and then spelled out in detail in other laws as well, which are often called the Book of the Covenant. And you know, this is something we often miss That God's law, God's commands are not an end in themselves, but rather they're part of something bigger. They're part of a covenant. They're part of a committed relationship. They aren't something we do, we need to do uh, in order to gain salvation, in order to gain a relationship with God. No, God gives salvation first. Have you ever thought about that? I, I love the way Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it. God did not send Moses down to Egypt with the law already tucked under his cloak to say to Israel in bondage, Here you are, this is God's law, and if you keep it fully from now on, God will come and rescue you out of this slavery. No, God rescued his people from Egypt first. God spared them from judgment at Passover first. Why? Because they'd earned it? Because they'd kept the law? No. Why does God save them? God saves them because of God's grace. God saves them because God made an earlier promise, a covenant with Abraham. And then once God has saved his people, he says, now let's have a relationship. Let's commit to one another. Why? Because you've been so righteous? No, again, the offer of relationship, the offer of covenant is is another gift of grace. God says in his grace... Let's make a covenant. Here's what I'll do for you. Here's what you will need to do for me. It's all spelled out in the covenant, and that's what the law is. It it spells out in detail uh, the details of of how God's people can be faithful to their part of the covenant, to their relationship with God. And so in the Ten Commandments and in the other laws that God gives, God spells out the covenant requirements for the the vassal, (laughs) for the, the, the lesser party in the covenant. And what we have in these covenant requirements in the law is, is, is a vision. It's, it's a legal code. It's a blueprint for a nation, for a society which will allow God's people to be what God is inviting them to be, which we read in verses 5 to 6. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right now, the people are just a ragtag bunch of slaves who've, who've just been liberated. And God wants to turn them into a nation who will be a beacon of light to the whole world. A people characterized by goodness, by justice, by rule of law. And so if you study the laws of the Old Testament, you find this, this threefold focus on what the laws are about. They're they're aimed to shape this people into a nation who will live in the land. And so the law addresses how we're to treat the Lord, to to relate to God, to worship God, to view God. And then also, the law tells us how we're to treat other people, to love our neighbor, to, to live justly, to live rightly. And then finally, the law addresses how we're to live in the land that God is going to give. And you know, this land part's often the part we overlook. The law tells us how we're to treat our animals, how to treat the land when to give it a rest, how much of it to harvest. And, and since in that economy land was wealth, many of these, these land laws are economic laws. They're telling God's people how to conduct themselves financially and economically, how to live justly in relation to others, how, uh, how, how to live so that we don't oppress one another, so that the rich don't get overly rich while the poor suffer but instead how we're to look out for one another. And so just like at creation, God took the darkness and the chaos and formed a habitable good world. So we see here at Sinai, God is forming this ragtag mass of people into a nation with rule of law, with good society, with order, with justice. And so what happens at Sinai is utterly striking for, for its day and still today. Because most of the other pagan gods didn't care how people lived. They just wanted to be worshipped to stroke their egos. And they wanted a sacrifice to appease them. But they didn't care much how people behaved. But the Lord at Sinai is totally different. God teaches the people not only how to please him, but how to live in God's world as a nation, as a people, to live good lives and through their lives, to be a light and a witness, to model for the world a whole different way to live. To show the world how they should live and and who the true God is. That the nations might be drawn to the Lord. Isn't that what God promised Abraham? Through your descendants, all nations will be blessed. And so the people, by, by being invited into covenant with God, the people are offered an identity and a purpose in the world. And the people gladly accept. They say, what an awesome calling. Third, interestingly, there isn't a lot in this covenant about the blessings and the cursings or the consequences of the people's breaking the covenant, but that will come later in the story, as we'll see. Well, not only does God make this covenant with the people, but God intends to make this relationship personal and to come down himself and dwell among his people. And so God's come down on the top of Mount Sinai with thunder and with fire and with quaking And they're overwhelmed by God's awesome, powerful presence. And then God says, let's make this permanent. Let's make my presence permanent. You can't stay here at Sinai. You've got to travel on to the land that I'm giving you. But I will go with you. So I can continue to be present among you. And so make me a royal tent. Make me a tabernacle. And I'll dwell in it in your midst. And I'll go with you everywhere you go. Just like I'm with you right here at Sinai right now. And so here, God's restoring what was lost way back at the beginning of the story when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were cast out of God's presence and out of the Garden of Eden. And so it's no surprise that the tabernacle that's built for God's presence is decorated like a paradise garden with pomegranates and flowers and fruits and almonds. It's God restoring God's presence with his people. There's only one problem, though. And that is that God is pure and God is perfect and God is holy and the people aren't. They have this tendency, they have this habit of rebelling against God and of breaking their promise to him and of going against God's will. In fact, what are they doing while Moses is up on the mountain getting the instructions for setting up this tabernacle? They're breaking the covenant already. They're they're worshiping an idol, a golden calf, and they're rebelling against God. The ink isn't even dry yet on the covenant. And God says, in effect, this will never work, this tabernacle thing. If I come to be present among my people, I'll wind up destroying them. Their behavior is criminal. I'll have to punish it. But Moses says, God, there's got to be a way that you can forgive this people. After all, what will the other nations think if you destroy your people or you abandon them? And God says, yes, there is, there is, because I am slow to anger and abounding in love. And so God sets up a sacrificial system to teach the people what it costs for God time and again to forgive his people and stay with them. If God is going to maintain a just nation, God can't just let every perpetrator walk all the time and say, well, boys will be boys, let them do what they wish, I'll overlook it, no consequences for my special people, they're my, my um, you know, spoiled children. No, there has to be justice, there has to be consequences. And if, if God is, is going to choose not to execute that justice and those consequences on his people, then a substitute will have to take their place. And so animal sacrifices are provide a way for people to seek God's forgiveness. And it teaches them about the need for a substitute. And it reminds them that their actions have consequences. When we act unlovingly, when we act recklessly, when we act unjustly, when we disobey God, someone always suffers. Someone always suffers. And someone always winds up paying the price. Much like the lamb did at Passover when its blood covered the people so they didn't need to die. So this sacrificial system is put in place, and the priests are appointed and consecrated to carry it out. And then this brand new nation is almost ready to move forward and to receive the promised land that God is going to give them. But there's something else they need to learn first, and that is the lesson of the desert. What's the desert? It's it's a place of dryness, a place of lack, a place of austerity there are very few material blessings in the desert there are few provisions and so you have to trust God just to survive in the desert and God wants to teach the people to trust him and so the desert is the place where God tests the people's faith and then God shows that that God is the one who provides what they need and so God allows the people to thirst and then God miraculously brings them water And God allows the people to hunger, and then God miraculously provides them with food. As Jesus put it, to test and to try them in the desert so that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So will the people trust God in the desert? Will they depend on God to provide what they need? Or will they forget the giver and chase after the gifts? And what will they do when God doesn't provide what they need right on cue exactly when they think they need it? Will they wait? Will they trust? Or will they complain and revolt? Well, they fail the test, don't they? (laughs) They grumble, they complain, they rebel. And when it finally comes time to go into the promised land, they fail that test too. The spies come back after surveying the land and they say, the land is good, but, but there are giants in the land. The cities are well fortified. We could never take that land. And so the people want out of the covenant. They want nothing to do with God. They'd rather go back and be slaves in Egypt again. And so because they don't trust God, because they lack faith, the, the promise is delayed for 40 years. That whole generation misses out on the promise. But God continues to be faithful to his end of the covenant. God continues to bear with them and to give them new chances. And so after 40 years, God raises up Joshua to lead a new generation into the land. But before this new generation takes the land, God takes them back to the covenant. God has Moses go over it all with them again, recommitting God's faithfulness to them and asking for their faithfulness in return. This is the book of Deuteronomy. In it, God goes over the law again, this time adapting it and applying it, not to life in the desert, but to life in the land. And so the parts about the land are expanded upon now that they're about to enter and possess the land. Yet God wonders, if you guys can't even be faithful to me in the desert where there are very few distractions, how are you ever going to be faithful in the bounty of the land? If you aren't spiritually uh, capable of handling poverty, how in the world are you ever going to handle wealth? And so God goes over with them in great detail the cursings and the blessings of the covenant. God lays before them all the blessings they'll enjoy if they keep the covenant. And God warns them in detail of what will befall them, the curses they'll experience if they break the covenant. And God says, choose life, not death. Choose the blessings, choose to be faithful to me and our covenant together. And that's what the law is. It's, it's the way of life. Just like in the Garden of Eden, there was life offered, but also death. If they disobeyed God's commands and they ate from the forbidden tree. Well, in the case of the Israelites now, on the the verge of the promised land, God is not very optimistic about what they'll choose. Because the people have already proved again and again that they're unfaithful. But nevertheless, they renew and they reconfirm the covenant. And God does, and the people do. And then Moses dies, and the mantle of leadership passes to Joshua. And Joshua leads the new generation into the promised land. We're almost to the end of today's part of the story. God leads the way, again, as a mighty warrior, just like God was when he delivered them from Egypt. Now, now taking the land requires courage, and it requires faith in in God's promise, in God's power, in God's protection. And the people, not surprisingly, don't have this kind of faith or courage. And so they only partly take the land. They they win some battles, but, but they lose some too. And so we find when all is said and done and the dust is settled that there are still enemies in the land. The, the p- people don't have faith to drive them out or to take all the, all the territory. And so in the book of Judges, we, we then have this cycle which begins to happen again and again. The, the people don't have faith, they aren't faithful to God. In fact, they turn and they worship other gods, the gods of the other peoples in the land. Instead of being a, a good influence on these peoples, um, instead of being a blessing to them, the, the, the God's people let The the people around them influence them and and turn them away from God. And and so God lets these enemies, the, the Philistines, the Midianites, others, to oppress his people and to defeat his people. And then what do the people do? They cry out to the Lord for help. And what does God do? God is faithful to his side of the covenant. And the Lord comes to the aid of his people. God raises up deliverers. They're called judges in the Bible. Samson, Gideon, Deborah, others, And these leaders raise armies and by God's power they defeat the enemies and then they lead the people and things go well for a while. But then what happens? The people turn away from God. They rebel again. And then the cycle repeats itself all over again. The people run after other gods. The other nations oppress them. The people cry out. God raises up a deliverer and rescues them. And this happens again and again and again in the book of Judges. It's a depressing book of if you've read it, even though there's some really cool stories in there, especially if you're a little boy. <laughs> and, and, and so, as we finish today's chapter of the story, we're wondering when will this end? This, this cycle, this depressing cycle, this isn't working. What's God going to do with his people? And next week, we'll find out. <laughs> But just as we close for today, I want you to notice two things about today's chapter of the story. First, notice how, God, how faithful God is, right? <laughs> Even if the people are not faithful to the covenant, God stays faithful. You know, it's popular to say that the God of the Old Testament's a God of wrath and judgment. But, but this, is this the story of a wrathful God? I mean, given what the people put God through, God had every right, every legal right, based on the written legal covenant to destroy the people. But God doesn't. God forgives them. God bears with them. God remains faithful to them time and again. As God put it to Moses on Mount Sinai, when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God told Moses who God was. I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet on the other hand, there's more to that verse if you know it, isn't there? It goes on, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Because along the way in this grand story of God's patience and forgiveness and faithfulness, there are individual people and even individual generations of people who miss out on what God is doing. They miss out on God's purposes. Because they don't trust God enough to be faithful and to follow God's leading. And so they face the consequences, the curses of breaking the covenant. And God punishes them and then God moves on without them. So we each face a choice. As the writer of Hebrews put it, reflecting on Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors tested me and tried me. Though for 40 years, they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest, which was the promised land. And so now let me close with these words, which come next in Hebrews. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long it is call, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us this story. First, giving it, a, giving it to us by causing it to take place in history. And then by causing it to be written down so that we could understand it and see it from your point of view. Thank you that you are so faithful. God, we confess that we are often unfaithful. And so we beg your mercy and we beg the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to allow us to live out of the new hearts that you've given us, that we might please you and be faithful to the covenant you've made with us through Jesus Christ. Amen.